This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Taylor Riggs. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. And this week, a host of stories all over the world, all over the map. Victoria's Secret, they have more than a Jeffrey Epstein problem, Taylor. We also take you to Minneapolis. They're taking aim at single-family homes. Plus, how 2020 will be the Hunger Games of the entertainment industry. That is a pun intended. It is this week's cover story. First up, though, Jason. So raising venture capital money is complicated on all sides of the equation for both the funders and the fundees. And the level of difficulty only gets more difficult if you are a woman. And that is still the case in Silicon Valley, even at the best-known shop. Sarah McBride back with me from San Francisco, taking us inside the experience of one partner at Sequoia Capital. That's Jess Lee. Sarah, great to have you with us. And tell us about Jess. So Jess Lee is the first U.S. investing partner at Sequoia Capital who's a woman. So the firm was founded in 1972, and for decades there were no women partners here in the U.S. And then a A couple years ago, the firm hired Jess Lee, who is a former product manager at Google and CEO of a startup called Polyvore, and it was a big deal, and everybody was looking to see how she did, especially since Sequoia had been in the news a couple times over some of the things its partners had done that people thought weren't that female friendly. So there was a lot riding on her shoulders. Right. And specifically, Mike Moritz on this network said, and I'm quoting here, what we're not prepared to do is lower our standards when asked about bringing in women partners. That's a tough beat, to say the least. And yet, Jessely perseveres. She takes the partnership. What has her experience been like with Moritz and others? Right. To be fair, a lot of people thought that she was brought in as a direct result of those comments. Segoya had actually been trying to recruit her before that point, but the timing was just unfortunate. So um, she told me this crazy experience she had right after she joined Sequoia Capital. Normally, partners from a big, prestigious firm like that have to be kind of careful when they go out into the world. They get mobbed. Every entrepreneur wants to pitch them their startup idea. And she described for my colleague Lizette Chapman and me going down to a conference at Upfront Ventures in LA. So there were lots of entrepreneurs, lots of other VCs, people who normally would have given their eye teeth to talk to a partner at Sequoia Capital. And she says that, you know, she was a new partner, so people didn't know who she was, but she described walking around the room and people just looked at her, saw a young face, an Asian woman, and didn't even look down at her name tag to see who she was, just assumed she was in marketing or just not an important person, that they didn't even need to look at her name tag. That wouldn't happen now because she's a more recognizable figure now, but I think that just was a devastating anecdote that shows the subconscious mindset that a lot of people in technology have. Well, and one of the really important things about your story that I appreciated was this notion of the the complexity of 
women dealing with other women in the VC and tech world. Talk a little bit about that because it's not this straight ahead, like women helping other women, sisters doing it for themselves kind of thing. It's very different. Right. So I do think that now there's an attitude where most women do want to help other women, but it hasn't always been like that. And even a lot of the women who think they want to help other women sometimes subconsciously realize they're sort of an outsider and don't want to be lumped in with the other outsiders. This is something I've written about over the years. There was an academic study that came out a couple years ago that showed when women were evaluating startup pitches and men were evaluating startup pitches, the women were a lot harder on the pitches that came from other women, whereas the men were actually more likely to be supportive of those pitches. Young women founders have told me that they dread going to pitch women because women are harder on them and ask tougher questions. Now I think a lot of people have done some thinking about how women are treated and how women can help each other and there's less likelihood of that happening. There's a group here in Silicon Valley that Jess Lee is deeply involved with called All Raise, where there's a conscious effort to help women founders and women entrepreneurs. So I think because people have really examined their own behavior, hopefully that happens less, but that's an unfortunate tendency. And so did you leave this story and leave your conversations with Jess more uh, optimistic about the future of women in Silicon Valley, especially on the investor side? You know, I did. I think there's a tendency to tell each other, great, the sisterhood, everybody helping each other. And it's a lot more complicated than that. But overall, I did leave a lot more optimistic. Well, and as you point out, importantly, in the story, it feels like we are at least getting to this moment where it's not enough to say, okay, we have a woman who is a partner that most firms are taking a little bit more of a holistic approach here. That's right. They they are. They um, want to have at least two women. There are plenty of studies that show that once you get to two, the benefits multiply much more. There are efforts to just do more than pay lip service and not just promote the woman, but make sure she's comfortable in the position. And that's Sarah McBride, a really smart story taking you inside the world of venture capital, the gender relations, the gender imbalance. It's complicated. Well, safe to say one of the most important and certainly controversial sports figures of the last 20 years, maybe the last century, if we really stop and think about it, is Lance Armstrong. Well, he's back in a way. Max Chafkin caught up with him. He joins me from San Francisco. So, Max, you spent some time with the man himself Take us to Lance Armstrong's state of mind here in 2019. Yeah, so like you said, Lance Armstrong, uh, you know, one of the most controversial athletes, you know, pre-controversy, arguably, you know, one of the greatest athletes, won the the, the Tour de France uh, a, a record seven times. Um, and, you know, in, in the U.S. particularly, you know, there is really no one in, in cycling or even endurance sports um, like him over the last couple of decades. Um, so he was banned from sports, you know, totally described 
disgraced. Um, according to the um, U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, you know, it was the it was like the worst doper in history. Part of the part of a a team that did something just unprecedented. And um, according to government, bad. The government sued him for a hundred million dollars. It's one of these things you would think, you know, okay, this guy is never coming back from this. And uh, what what the story is about is kind of the way that Lance Armstrong um, sort of meticulously uh, built this comeback. And he started beginning with a podcast in 2016. Um, it was this confessional uh, podcast. And, and as the story talks about, you know, while he was doing that, it, it kind of looks like this, you know, total, you know, vanity project, but he was sort of putting the pieces into place to, to start to rebuild his business empire. Well, and what you capture in the story so well, I thought, is what made him so successful, whether it was pre-doping, early, early in his career, or even as, candidly, a cheater, this guy is a grinder. You know, like, whatever he's going to do, he's just going to do it and do it and do it and do it. And that's kind of what he's done here, as you say, very meticulously building this up. So help us understand what he's doing. He's got this podcast, but there's merch. I mean, there's yeah. an event series. He's out and about. What's he up to? So, yeah, I mean, probably best way to think of a, about him is as like a YouTube star or an influencer. Um, he's got a, a, a new media platform with a, a pretty sizable audience during, during the uh, Tour de France, with, which uh, just uh, wrapped up, uh, you know, a little less than a week ago. You know, this podcast was, was near the top of the iTunes charts. Um, and he's sort of using that and using the community of fans that, that you know, as he pointed out to me, they, they never went away. I mean, you know, Nike and, and every authority figure can say Lance Armstrong is bad, um, but there's like a pretty sizable chunk of sports fandom that will love him no matter what. And kind of what he figured out and, and what others have figured out, frankly, is that if you have a new media platform like a podcast, you can bring those people to you, you know, once a week or, or every day or, or what have you. And then you can you can send them to events. So, so Armstrong has these, um, they're not races because he's sort of banned from, uh, you know, organized cycling from sanctioned races but they're rides um, and uh, and then he has uh, basically an athletic brand called we do uh, w-e-d-u uh, and and the they're selling kits uh, cycling gear basically and water bottles and and you know the kind of stuff that that apparel companies have sold and then he's got one of these kind of um, patreon style membership programs where, where fans are paying sixty dollars a year and they get you know special access to gear they get you know special live Q&A podcasts and, and you know, all, all sorts of little member perks, stickers. And kind of the, the, the what's amazing here, to me anyway, is he's basically, I mean, he's not as rich as he used to be. You know, and he's talked on the podcast about, you know, he misses his private jet or, or whatever. But but he's kind of got the band back together. And, you know, I, I was listening to the podcast during the, the Tour de France. And, you know, it was, I mean, it was a really exciting tour. And um, you've got Lance Armstrong, uh, you know, the, the, the disgrace side. George Hinkapi, his his teammate, who was you know a, a domestique, which is like a sort of a helper cyclist on the on the great um, U.S. postal teams of the of the late '90s, and then you have Johan Bernil, who is another um, sort of acute you know part of the alleged you know doping conspiracy. So it's like all these guys who basically the the cycling authority, who or, you know sort of mainstream sports has said you know get out, they're they're back in and they're all together and they're sort of doing what they've always done. Well, and notably, I mean, wasn't Hinkapi one of the the guys who ultimately helped take Armstrong down? 
Yeah, you know, I talked to Hinkapi about that. I mean, he, I think, you know, basically Armstrong, you know, had had a difficult time, obviously. The government was was going after um you know him, and then and then attempting to flip all these witnesses, and and you know I think Hinkapi and and a bunch of other people in that circle sort of briefly lost touch with Armstrong. Uh, uh, Hinkapi told me you know they didn't speak for a while, but you know they've built back the relationship, yeah. and and it's something that I think you know sports fans in general are doing for better or worse. Now we should say there are a lot of people, um, both in terms of sort of the the cancer world. You know Lance Armstrong was a, was a huge um, sort of activist, philanthropist, and. Can- in cancer, a lot of people felt betrayed. Those people, many of them still feel betrayed. Um, you also have a lot of people, you know, in sports who who still, are, you know, are never going to forgive this guy. And, you know, there are good reasons for that. There's a long paper trail of, of basically betrayal. Right. Well, because it wasn't only what he did, but the vitriol with which he defended himself, which leads me to this last question, which is, how is he... From a personality perspective, because to say he was defiant for a long time is an understatement. And, you know, he uses language that I won't repeat uh, here on this family program about his state of mind throughout. What's he like now? He's, you know, I think... Lance Armstrong is sort of a a communications genius, and he you know during his his career was able to take this kind of niche sport um, and this really unique story you know his the, the fact that he uh, survived you know late stage testicular cancer and basically turn cycling into a huge thing make, make himself a, a, a you know a skinny road cyclist not normally a marketable commodity into you know one of the highest paid athletes in the world. Um, He's kind of doing the same thing now. So, so like, he's still combative. I mean, he, he you know, told me he hates the media and, you know, kind of apologized to me for it. And, 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 uh, and, and so th- there's kind of this weird thing where he, he sort of hates the media and, and he, he doesn't, he hasn't stopped hating the media. He hasn't stopped being sort of a difficult interview and, and all of those things. But he's also kind of found ways to cultivate the parts of his personality that, you know, make for good podcast. I yeah. mean, what's, what's so wonderful, I mean, and, you know, even if you really don't like Lance Armstrong, you kind of have to admit that the podcasts themselves are super entertaining because he is good at it. He can be vulnerable. He can mine those pieces of himself that are really compelling. And so it, it's, it's you know, even if you don't like him, you sort of can't help but listen. That's Max Chafkin. Jason, that Lance Armstrong. I hadn't thought about him in so long. I'm going to call him my new comeback kid. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the podcast format is really amenable, apparently, to him. He's a little bit confessional and it seems to be working. So Victoria's Secret, very much in the news, not in the way that it would like to be. Its CEO and his association, his longtime association with Jeffrey Epstein, who is under an enormous amount of scrutiny, currently in jail in New York City, awaiting trial. Jordan Holman follows all of this for us and takes us inside Victoria's Secret. Not a great moment for Victoria's Secret. Correct. So it's not a great moment right now for Victoria's Secret for multiple reasons. So their CEO, um, Les Wexner, who also runs L Brands in um, Bath and Body Works, he has a longtime friendship with Jeffrey Epstein. At one point, um, Jeffrey Epstein was the power of attorney for Les Wexner. They say that they severed ties more than a dozen years ago. 
But just the skeletons in that closet have caused more issues for the company down the line in terms of the modeling agency they use and just responding to consumer demand for today. And so beyond the relationship between these two men, which I think it's safe to say more to come on, on, yeah. on that. It feels like there's more to be revealed. This is coming at a time where Victoria's Secret does not feel, shall we say, without being too glib, doesn't feel very 2019. No, not at all. So they've, in the past few years, Victoria's Secret has gotten a lot of criticism for not being body positive, more inclusive with their advertising, who's on their uh, catwalks for the fashion show. And at the same time, they've had a lot of competitors come into the space and say, actually, we want to make lingerie for women and not for men just to look at. And Victoria's Secret has not quickly shifted to that trend that's happening. Because it's fair to say, I think, Jordan, that no one has essentially used sex and maybe more specifically sexiness to better effect or to more profitable effect than Victoria's Secret. As you point out in your story, the word sexy finds itself into the names of its products. Yes, literally they've trademarked dozens of products with the name sexy in it. And then on top of it, some history on Victoria's Secret. It was created more than 40 years ago by a man who went into a department store to buy lingerie for his wife, did not love the experience, and said, hey, I'm going to create a store that men feel comfortable buying women's underwear. That's how you get Victoria's Secret. So they were founded with men in mind, even though their end customer is a woman. So that is... You know, they're dealing with that history, right. and that's why they're kind of very slow to respond to this. Uh, women are speaking out saying, we don't want that type of product anymore. And that's reflecting in their sales. They've lost $20 billion in market value in just the past four years. That's such an interesting point, the history, and really impor- important to point out. And, you know, you fast forward to closer to the present, and you have this chief marketing officer who is seen as this uber powerful guy in the modeling industry and in the sort of lingerie fashion industry. You have a great anecdote about him backstage at the fashion show. Tell us about that. So Ed Razik, he is the chief marketing officer of Victoria's Secret. He's 71 years old. And he's really, he's the one who runs this fashion show. Les Wexner is a little bit more removed from it. And he takes his job very seriously. So um, in between the tapings of the Victoria's Secret fashion shows, there's two tapings, he gathers all the models together, all the angels, and basically talks to them as if he's a coach giving them a pep talk before the big game. And he says, literally in the history of the world, there has not been a more important job than being a Victoria's Secret angel. Only 165 women have had this job at this point in the history of the world. It's very over the top. He's very much looking at their jobs through this lens of you guys are wearing, you know, these underwear with the angel wings. And this is the most important job. And you should be proud of yourselves. And most women can't do this. Right. Amazing. I mean, the... I have to say, reading this, you just encounter this company, especially in light of what their competitors are doing, as you mentioned, that just feels out of step. Tell us a little bit about the competition, because to be fair, Victoria's Secret wasn't the only company. You think about American Apparel, you think about Abercrombie & Fitch, all of whom, each of whom have used sex to sell in, in different ways as well. And yet those other companies have kind of gotten the joke. 
Yeah. So in retail, it's not new to use sexy to advertise. But what's happened with the companies you name, American Apparel, and you have Abercrombie & Fence, they got hit by that. You know, people, they got a lot of criticism. They had to reel that back. Um, American Apparel isn't as strong as it used to be. Abercrombie, they, you know, turned on the lights and they've changed their mannequins, all that kind of stuff. Victoria's Secret has been more resistant. And so during this time, even though they still have a lot of market share in the lingerie industry, you have American Eagles Airy, which is like bralettes and more body positive and teens really love it. And they're marketing and using women of all sizes, not like what you're used to seeing if you walk into a Victoria's Secret store. So you have that, you have smaller competitors like Third Love, um, and it's all with the women in mind at the end of the day. And that's not what's happening um, at Victoria's Secret. And that's Jordan Holman Taylor, what a smart story because it's very Bloomberg in a lot of ways. The Jeffrey Epstein story, its tentacles are going everywhere. And yet Victoria's Secret, it's bigger than just this one guy. Crazy enough, though, Jason, we took a look at the annual revenue. This company, Victoria's Secret, still pulling in more than $7 billion. Hard to see how they're going to go anywhere from here. Exactly. So, Taylor, one of the most interesting battlegrounds right Mm -hmm. now across all All of the world of business is streaming. Your eyeballs, everybody (laughs) wants them. Felix Gillette is here to bring us up to date on the streaming wars. It's getting crazy. It is. It's this incredible showdown. And the next year, it's just going to get even more fierce and even more brutal for, you know, all these tech and media companies that are piling into the space. So we've talked to you before about this collision, you know, this collision course that all these companies have been on. It's been looming for a while. But as you say, this is really where it comes to bear. Netflix doesn't have this to themselves anymore. Netflix and Amazon, I guess I should say, don't have this to themselves anymore. And Disney seems to be I mean, Disney's leading the charge. So Disney Plus will be arriving in November. That's going to be huge. Um, You know, and then following after, closely after that, um, you know, next spring, we're going to have HBO Max is going to be arriving. NBC is putting together their streaming service. subscription video on demand service. So, uh, and also you have Apple coming in sometime this fall also with Apple video uh, TV plus, which is going to be coming in there. So it's, you know, yeah, for a long time, it was kind of Netflix, a little bit of Amazon, maybe check out CBS all access. All of a sudden it's just going to be this, uh, you know, wide open field. Well, and you have to hand it to Netflix. I mean, they really sort of paved the way and it Mm -hmm. feels to me like everyone else is playing catch-up, really, at this point. How worried is Netflix? I don't think they're too worried in the sense that they do have a little bit of a buffer. They have the rights for a lot of these shows that they've licensed from these companies. Some of them are coming to an end, and there's been a lot of news recently about you know, AT&T paying this vast amount of money to get friends back yeah. mm-hmm. uh, from Netflix, one of Netflix's most popular shows, which is, to me, kind of amazing also. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's going to cost you know, $100 million or whatever they were uh, getting from Netflix. You give up that money so you can bring it over to HBO Max and hope that you know, friends, fans will come over to HBO Max as a new service. But it it kind of like gets to what's also just so daunting about this competition is, you know, for years, these media companies, 
you know, as DVD sales were declining, they made up that money by licensing their shows to Netflix and Amazon. And it was kind of easy money. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you didn't really have to do much. You already made the shows and they were getting good prices for them. And now it's that's part of the difficult decision. Okay, we're going to give up that easy money. We're going to bring those shows back. And the big question is how many of those subscribers can you bring back and, and get them to test out these new services? One of the questions that I keep thinking about is how do you delineate value between existing shows, the friends, which, as you say, like has a popularity that I think baffles at least me. Yeah. I'm also baffled by the continuing popularity in my own house with my mm-hmm. teenagers of The Office, I right. mean, mm-hmm. which is another hundred million yeah. a year property, right, apparently. Right, which NBC is going to bring back yeah. uh, for their streaming show. Yeah, I mean, what is a successful show? I mean, that is a huge question. Now, we knew what a successful show was in the old paradigm of broadcast and cable television. And now, this is a new world. It's not based on uh, advertising as much. Now it's based on this fierce competition for subscribers. Um, and that changes the dynamic of what, you know, and your strategy. I mean, it's interesting that one of the things that's happening now is you see this kind of similar uh, you know, all these services are trying to create tentpole events and blockbusters, sort of similar to what you had with Hollywood studios and yeah. in the movie business. And I think a lot of that is, you know, shows like Game of Thrones that just create so, that are hugely expensive. But if they click, if they work and bring in, uh, you know, vast numbers of new subscribers and hopefully hold on to them for multiple seasons. And so, yeah, that's part of the escalation of this competition also. I mean, Amazon going out and paying $250 million for the rights um, to do a Lord of the Rings TV series. And that's before you even start shooting, before you've even cast, you know, hired a single actor, started a script. I mean, it's going to cost a lot of money. And um, everybody, it's great for, you know, the, the TV writers and creators. Um, you know, that's the peak TV yeah. phenomenon. But I guess if you're writing the checks, it can look a little bit more like a valley. Jason brought up a good point mm-hmm. about trying to differentiate the value between existing shows and new shows. We yeah. talked a lot about Netflix spending four, five, twenty billion dollars, mm-hmm. be it you know sometimes per quarter when we're taking a look at negative free cash flow, for yep. example. Are some of the new entrants prepared to pay that price to really heavy, heavily invest in original programming? I don't think anyone's going to be able to match Netflix's mm-hmm. programming budget out of the gate. I mean, uh, but they are going to spend a lot of money. Will it be enough? I mean, what's crazy mm-hmm. is you talk about, oh, you know, Apple, they're only going to spend a billion or two on this. That's not <laughs> enough, you know? Yeah. I mean, Disney, yeah. which has the most enormous library of content in the world, the fact that they, before they launched Disney Plus and, you know, that they went out and, they, oh, we got to go buy 21st Century Fox. We need to really stock up on yeah. some shows. I mean, it's crazy. Um, and I think it does get to the dynamic that's changed. I mean, in the old world, if your network um, you know, had a little bit lull in programming, you were kind of insulated from um, – you know, by being part of a bundle, right? Um, and people, it was hard to cancel. You know, in the subscri- in the you know streaming world, it's so easy to just, nah. You know, I, I've seen everything I want to see here. There's nothing else for me. I'm just going to cancel this. It takes a couple clicks. You don't have long term contracts, um, and so the churn rates are much higher. And you also have this phenomenon that people talk about now, which is the binge and churn, which is, oh, I want to see that one show. You know, I'll subscribe go in there, spend a week watching the show, and after a month, 
eh, I'll cancel the service. Um, I think the good thing for these for, in this competition um, for the new services is that uh, consumer surveys show that people are willing to go test out a new service yeah. based often on one show. So right. you can definitely pull people in, uh, but the trick is, you know, how are you going to keep them? And I think to do that, yeah, you're going to have to have vast amounts of, um, you know, spend vast amounts on programming, both for original new shows and also to have, you know, a really deep bench of, of classics. One of the things that I think certainly knocked me back, and I think even you in reporting this mm-hmm. was the vast amount of money that Netflix alone is spending on marketing. I yeah. mean, and you have some great examples in the story of the links that they are going to to get in front of people. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, $2.4 billion in marketing in 2018, uh, which we were comparing. That was more than, you know, it's basically what HBO was spending on all of their programming in 2017, just to give you some comparison. So, yeah, Netflix is spending a lot of money um, getting out there. Of course, they're you know also pushing the boundaries in terms of you know this is not just a U.S. service; they're going all over the world with that. So that's part of the cost. Um, but they have this incredible brand name, and yeah, they just all the different touch points. And there's going to be so many shows, so many new shows, so much competition that just trying to get people's attention right. is going to cost a huge amount of money. To the point where this is my favorite anecdote in the story. Mm-hmm. Stickers in public bathrooms that have lines of cocaine and right. rolled up dollar bills yeah. to promote Narcos. Yeah, I mean that's you know that's part of every show. You got to come up with some campaign, uh, try and make some noise uh, because things do kind of come and go. Um, A captive and, audience, Taylor. Clearly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about pricing strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, because we really vary. Five ninety nine for Hulu. HBO comes out $15 a month. Yeah. Is it going to be a race to the bottom where given the competitive forces, we're all now just going to pay $5 a month? Yeah, I think it's it's incredible. There's going to be a lot of pressure on HBO at that price. I mean, Disney Plus is coming in at, you know, $7 mm-hmm. a month, which is, I mean, that's like, if you have kids, you're like, that's uh, babysitting costs yeah. alone. That's nothing. I'll just mm-hmm. get that. And, and yeah, I think it's going to put a lot of pressure. Um, Netflix just raised their prices earlier this year. And what happened? You know, for the first time, they lost net subscribers in the second quarter because of those price hikes. And they didn't even raise the price that much. Um, So I think that what that shows is, yeah, it's going to be a lot of uh, pressure to keep prices down. And, uh, you know, Disney says they don't expect to turn a profit on Disney Plus, you know, 2024. I mean, I think everybody is going to be losing money in the short term. And I think your hope is that, you know, three, four, five years from now, you survive as, you know, one of the top two or three services and the competition falls back a little bit. And at that point, maybe you can bring up prices. You mentioned earlier this notion of peak TV, and Mm -hmm. I feel like we've been talking about that for a couple of years now. How much longer will this peak last? And what does the other side of the peak look like? The one way in which it's changing now is I think uh, you're going to see Netflix with this new increased pressure be a little bit more conscious, cost conscious mm-hmm. about, you know, uh, you know, is a show working? Is an audience growing? Is it bringing in new subscribers? And if it's not, we're not going to renew it. Yeah. And I think that's mm-hmm. the thing you're starting to hear out of Hollywood now is, you know, that they're being a little bit more um, judicious about renewals and um, that – 
you know, that might put a little bit of pressure um, on shows. And it's going to upset some fans and your favorite show gets canceled. That's Felix Gillette. Jason, my key takeaway here, I cannot wait to see the amount of CapEx and negative free cash flow as these companies spend so much on original programming. I don't think any of them are expected to post a profit through 2020. Well, a major interview down in Mexico City this week, the first international interview with the relatively new president of Mexico. He has spent a lot of time and low, as they call him, has talking to the Mexican people. Now he's talking to the world. John Micklethwaite, our editor-in-chief, conducted the interview. He joins me from Mexico City. So, John, this was a big get, as they say. Uh, What do you think led uh, AMLO to talk to us at this moment? I think two things. One was a personal thing. He came to see Bloomberg when he was in opposition, and he was impressed. We saw him. Um, The second thing is actually I think he does need to reach out to the world. You have the situation where he has 70% approval ratings. Um, He is an austere populist. He's not spending money, rather the opposite, which is very, very unusual for somebody from the left. But he's got the people behind him because they think that he's against corruption, he's clean, drives around and rather... Um, not tawdry, but not exactly smart Volkswagen. Um, That's the bit he's doing very well. The bit he's not doing so well is reaching out to the business community, reaching out to investors. And there, there are bigger doubts about him. And why is that? I mean, is this purely economically? You look at the data coming out of Mexico, and it it doesn't look great, to say the least. It's It's slowed down a bit. And that's a mixture. That's some ways part of the good things he's doing. He's, he's just said, I do not want, I want to keep the primary surplus. I don't want to spend money. I think there's far too much money being spent corruptly and I'm going to crack down on it. And I think on the whole, the business and the investment community quite like that. The stuff they worry about is, I suppose, the economic nationalism. He's pulled back and said he doesn't want to do any more oil auctions, cancelled those. And he also kind of interfered a bit. And he has this thing where every morning he does a press conference for about sort of 90 minutes um, where he just talks about what's on his mind. And he, but he has done things, like, for instance, he scrapped an, air, an airport project. Most people think that Mexico City needs a big new airport. He scrapped this 13 billion one, even though it's sort of some way halfway through. And that, I think, you know, that's not a good thing with investors. Investors don't like things where there's suddenly uncertainty. Well, it's hard to talk about him without talking about his neighbor in the north, uh, Donald Trump. There have been many comparisons made between the two men. Their relationship, if they were on Facebook, I think they'd call it complicated. Right, John? So what did he have to say? (laughs) What did you take away from his view of President Trump? Well, he has been rather remarkable in that respect. Again, you know from Mexico, man of the left, not generally somebody who who would temper his words about Trump. And indeed, in the last time we spoke to him back in 2017, or the last time he did a big formal interview with us, he he complained that Trump was setting up an atmosphere of hatred um, towards Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. Ever since he has become president, he has been remarkably calm. No matter what Trump says, uh, he sometimes stands up to Trump, but on the whole, He's resolutely polite back. And even in, in, in our interview, he talks about Trump becoming more moderate, which to some extent I'm rather surprised that uh, Fox News and, and Trump have not seized on as proof that he has many friends across the border. But he sits there and he takes it. He does fight back on some things. I mean, AMLO has not, probably will not agree to do this thing called safe third country status, which is what um, Guatemala have already right. been forced into which is where you, uh, you, you say, look, I will look after... Anyone looking for asylum 
has to get asylum with me first rather than come to America. And Mexico, I think, is likely to say no to that. You know, he notably did not attend the G20 summit, John, and has not been as engaged maybe with the broader cadre of world leaders. What do you make of that? And what does that say about his he, stature in the he's world? He's very clear. He's very clear. He, he wants to focus purely on Mexico. He doesn't want to travel. And um, we asked, you know, you can talk to him about whether he would come and meet Trump. Um, I think the answer is he'd rather Trump came to meet him. He's not being impolite, but he's basically told the Mexican people that he'd spend the first year here focusing on what he thinks he needs to do for the country. And I think also that's his style. Um, you could see from the interview he talks very slowly, very deliberately. On the campaign trail, he does these rallies every weekend, again, a little bit like Trump, but with a very different style. He goes to all corners of Mexico and he tells them, look, he's fighting for them and he's doing things for them. And it's a very big change from Peña Nieto, who right. was his predecessor. So put him in the pantheon, as it were, of the world leaders that you've talked to just over the past couple of years. I'm thinking of Putin, Erdogan, May, Trump, etc., Merkel. Where does he fit in? How does he compare to his peers around the world? He has one similarity with Erdogan, is that he believes a little bit in what might be described as unorthodox economics. Um, you know, he has a sort of theory that if he cut spending, everything will be fine. And there are some bits where, and he often lashes out at what he calls sort of neoliberal. So he doesn't, well now, now that the GDP is, number is not advancing as he hoped, you know, he makes comments like that. But it is a very, very different style um, to Erdogan. It's a much more gentle one. I think the really remarkable thing about him is this sort of man of the left who doesn't want to spend money thing. You know, that, that is a really unusual thing. Imagine you'd spent all your life um, Jason Kelly waiting to become um, Prime Minister of Ireland or indeed President of America and throughout that entire time you had sat on the left wing talking about spending on this, doing this, doing that and then you come into power and then actually you do the opposite. You clamp down on spending because you, partly because you think there is too much corruption but also because you just want to be absolutely clear that Mexico is not going to be badly run. Yeah. And that is, that's a, a novel way of looking at it and I think that's a very different thing and whether he can keep on pulling that off. We'll see. That's Bloomberg Editor-in-Chief John Micklethwaite. And Taylor, I was really eager to catch up with him post-interview just to see where he puts AMLO in the pantheon of world leaders that he talks to all the time. Well, and talking about his relationship with the U.S. and then define some of those fiscal hawks. So if you're looking for a revolution in housing... Look no further, apparently, than Minneapolis. Didn't necessarily see that one coming. Noah Buhayer joins me from Seattle, where he has taken a look at what's happening there in the Midwest. So an unlikely place, Noah, to say the least. But what's going on in that city? Yeah. Um, so what happened is last year, uh, Minneapolis, uh, every 10 years, all the cities uh, in, in the Twin Cities regions are required to go through this long range planning exercise. And, you know, often this is a pretty boring exercise. Not a lot of people pay attention to it. But what happened last year when Minneapolis went through this is that they decided to really take a hard look at housing access and equality around housing. And uh, as they were drafting this plan, it's over a thousand pages, it's got all sorts of stuff in it. Um, they came up with a really interesting idea, which is uh, basically that this whole concept of single family zoning, putting one house on each residential lot, uh, really didn't fit what the city wanted to do and what the city needed in terms of how 
it should grow. So um, the proposal in this really long, dense document uh, basically was to allow by right developers to put uh, up to a triplex on all of those single family lots. And, you know, this sounds like a kind of technical thing, but it's actually a really big deal in America because uh, it's not just Minneapolis. All across the country, uh, we've developed, or in the latter half of the 20th century, these zoning laws were a big reason why we developed really uh, low density cities. Uh, so, what the leaders there in Minneapolis were trying to solve for was a, was a housing affordability crisis and the fact that a lot of people wanted um, to move into their town. And they were also looking at some historic racial inequity in housing. Uh, you have, for instance, in Minneapolis, about 60% of whites are homeowners, but uh, just around 20% of blacks are. That's actually one of the biggest gaps in the nation. And, you know, this is a city in the north. This is not exactly where people think that kind of disparity would exist. Yeah, and you point out, on that exact point, I mean, you point out something really interesting in your story. You quote the mayor of Minneapolis, that's Jacob Fry. You quote him, quote, you had these intentionally segregationist and racist policies that effectively barred blacks from living in certain parts of town. But then once that became illegal, the city, quote, started doing it in other ways, through the zoning code. And what you end up with is a very, to say the least, sort of bifurcated city, both in terms of the geography of it and, as you say, homeownership really being a sharp divide racially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly what the city leaders were pushing back on. And so when I went there earlier this year, I really went with two questions. One was, how did they get this to happen? Uh, this these are the, this is a kind of policy that just has been particularly fraught for local governments to take on in America because you have a lot of pushback from folks who own those single-family homes historically. Uh, you, we hear a lot about nimbyism, not in my backyard. Um, but the other question I was really interested in was, will it work? I mean, when you actually pass this and put something like this into effect, is it going to achieve the equity and affordability goals that the city has set out? And so what did you find? Well, it's complicated, right? So uh, on the first question, uh, you know, it was quite a fight. I mean, there, uh, I think one of the keys to this thing passing is that you had a change election in 2017 and you had a motivated city council uh, led by um, uh, a politician named Lisa Bender, who has a background in city planning and set this as a, as, as a long-term goal and really worked diligently toward getting the political support for it. Uh, you also had a grassroots effort to back this plan that really spun a very positive message. Their slogan was Neighbors for More Neighbors uh, that really resonated with a lot of people in Minneapolis. So they built this broad coalition of people who were for the plan, um, which was pretty effective in countering um, the NIMBY sentiment, which for sure was there. I mean, this was an incredibly divisive political fight in Minneapolis last year. And uh, the local council passed it in December. It's still awaiting sign off from um, a regional council, but that's uh, expected in September. Well, on and I second, like one of the things, mm -hmm. one of the things you point out, no, which I really loved in your story is this idea that this slogan, you know, neighbors for more neighbors sort of turns on its head. What we normally see is, you know, neighbors for fill in the blank, which is usually neighbors against anything changing around them, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they certainly had a sense of humor and were good at using social media 
to sort of put this idea out there. And they really brought a lot of the city along with them. And so will it work? Because this is an experiment that is going to be looked at very closely by big cities around the United States. You know, Bender herself has gotten a lot of praise from well beyond Minneapolis for being very progressive. This has become an issue in the 2020 election on the Democratic side already. But the question is, what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's complicated and we're we're just going to have to see how it plays out. One thing that I think is important to know is when I when I talked, I, I spent some time with a builder who has actually done a few triplexes around um, or he, he just completed a triplex. He got a variance to do one um, in, in Minneapolis. And he basically told me, you know, these projects are really idiosyncratic. It's it's going to be hard to make it a giant business opportunity. So. It's, it's hard to think how that one change is going to add a, a ton of new density to the city or a ton of new housing. Um, the, the plan, the urban plan that the city put forward also allows for more density for basically midsize and larger apartment buildings in other parts of town. And that's actually where it gets really interesting because the city wants to usher in this development boom, but they also want to make sure that some of those new units are affordable to you know, working class people, to low income people. And they're working through the policy for how to make that work. Uh, but in the meantime, the policy that they floated has really uh, put a lot of the real estate industry locally there uh, you know, up in arms. They're quite up in arms about it because they think they're basically being forced to pay for the city's affordable housing goals. And they think it's a non-starter for a lot of their projects. So we're going to have to see how this plays out over time. Um, but like you said, this is a very, very important case study in America right now for how we're going to uh, uh, tackle our housing affordability problem, which is, which is not just you know, something that's happening on the coasts. Uh, right. It's happening in the heartland. That's Noah Buhire. And Jason, this is a zoning story. It is a home price appreciation story. Interestingly enough, though, a lot of the residents may be not thrilled with the new law that's going into place. Well, and I have to think, you know, coming from California, being in New York now, Taylor, you understand better than anyone. This is really complicated, this whole affordable housing issue. And it's time for another edition of Business Week Talks. This week, my co-host Carol Master and I sat down with the CEO of NASDAQ. So NASDAQ out with earnings and joining us to talk about that and really the bigger picture of the market environment, the trading environment, is Adina Friedman. She's the CEO of NASDAQ. So nice to have you here with us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Let's talk about the quarter. Um, a little bit of a, I feels like Wall Street reading it as a little bit of a mixed picture. You did have an earnings beat, a little bit light on the revenues. How do you see the quarter? Well, from our perspective, we really focus on organic growth. And in our non-trading businesses, we grew 8% year over year. So we're really pleased with continued progress of our technology business, our Index and data businesses, as well as the really healthy environment we're seeing for IPOs in our corporate services business. The trading business has some fluctuation in it in terms of just overall volumes and, and impact that we're having in certain parts of our market. But at the same time, we're very pleased with the market share we're experiencing in the U.S. equities and options markets, as well as our Nordic equities markets. So from a competitive perspective, we feel very good about our core marketplaces. And at the same time, we manage through different environments that, that operate there. But in our non-trading businesses, that's where we're really driving for growth and we're experiencing that and we're very pleased with that. 
And so talk to us about the market technology business, especially because that's something people are keeping a very close eye on. What are the drivers underneath there? Sure. Well, we actually just came out with a new metric called um, ARR that we launched this quarter that really shows you the recurring revenue streams and looking at kind of how we look at our, our growth of our recurring revenue in that business. Market technology today, we provide the technology that powers 130 other markets around the world. And we also provide market monitoring technology for 150 broker dealer firms. So it's becoming a very scaled business for us. We're investing heavily in growth in that business. So in terms of generating, uh, creating a new uh, next-gen system, technology system to support our clients, moving more towards a platform as a service model, and expanding our market technology implementations beyond just the traditional capital markets into other industry verticals like insurance, um, and in some cases, betting and other things that we've been getting involved well, in. Well, you guys have some news about betting and also getting involved with football or footballers, right? In terms of where clients can actually, what makes some bets on them? So we are we are providing the technology to a company called the Football Index. That's a UK-based firm. So football in that parlance means soccer. soccer. <laughs> and um, and basically the, it allows uh, people to bet on certain players and, and understand. It's almost like fantasy football yeah. in a betting context. And they've created a marketplace that allows people to essentially buy interest in a player and then watch that player um, that player's performance and understand kind of what the returns are from that. More deals like that coming, different sports mm. or different industries in a similar way? Well, we already are in the horse racing business. We have three yeah. racing authorities that right. use our parimutuel betting platform. And we do see that as, a, as an industry vertical that is obviously very relevant to real-time price discovery and, tra- and high, high transaction processing capacity, as well as the potential for more advanced surveillance technology. We actually have Meaning a module. Well, in our, we have a technology that we provide to the industry with regulators, uh, exchanges, and market participants that help them monitor Mm -hmm. for manipulation and other nefarious behavior in the markets. Well, you can use that same technology in a betting context as well. And we do have a module that we created specifically for sports betting that would allow you to monitor the behaviors of the different people who are betting in your platform. Dean, I've got to ask you, because when you hear about these sports things, I think, you know, you go back, what, a decade or a couple decades, we wouldn't have thought the NASDAQ or any exchanges would be getting into this, but it's a different environment. Does that become much more of your business, those kind of new um, platforms, if you will, versus kind of the core marketing, not core marketing, but core trading? So, well, today the trading business, uh, our trading revenue is less, is about 25% of our overall revenue. So it's between not 25 that, and 30%, okay. depending on the quarter of our overall revenue. Our recurring revenue streams are the 70, 75%. That can come from data and analytics. It can come from our corporate services, and it also comes from market technology. Our technology business, think of us as almost like Switzerland. We can provide that technology to other exchanges. We can provide some of that technology to some of our competitors. Mm-hmm. We provide that technology to markets in very different spaces, not just in the traditional capital markets. And it is the fastest growing part of our business. Does it become the biggest part of your business ultimately? Well, I would love to think of that as an opportunity for us over a very long term, but we obviously have other great parts of our business as well. So when you think about what's out there in terms of potential acquisitions, we've seen a huge amount of consolidation and a lot of mergers and acquisitions across the exchange business, broadly defined. More to be done in the short term in terms of buying buying up things? Well, I, I think we 
number one, our, our primary focus is on organic growth, and we do feel very good about how we're delivering on that. But we do find opportunities to make some acquisitions. We recently bought a company called Sonober that helps expand uh, and catalyze more business into the market technology space. Right. Um, we also bought Evestment, which is in our data and analytics business, supporting our investment management firms. And we bought Quandle, which is a very small platform, but it's in an interesting space around alternative data. So we do find ways to leverage technology or leverage acquisitions to help execute our strategy. But we have a very defined strategy. So we want to make sure that our primary focus is how we grow our uh, relations with our clients in an organic way, potentially catalyzed with some acquisitions. That's NASDAQ CEO Adina Friedman. And for our full conversation, download the Bloomberg Talks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So we heard earlier in the show from Jordan Holman on what's happening at Victoria's Secret, a fascinating look at where that company may need to go next. And what was clear about that story is that there's a reckoning of sorts happening. Well, if you go back to the pursuit section toward the back of the magazine, Jordan has another piece. She works very hard here at Bloomberg, and it's this week's critic. And the headline alone really grabbed my attention. Who gets to be... An American. Jordan, back with me here in New York. Tell me about this story because I have to say it really stopped me in my tracks because you take this very important notion of American and Americanism and the use of the word American in art and sort of unpack it a bit. Take me here. For sure. So this year, I think one of the main conversations that's happening is who is an American? What makes you an authentic American? And as I've been mulling this question, I've been reading a lot. So there's a, a few handful of books. You have An American Summer, An American Merits. You have An American Son, which is a play. And all of them actually deal with the black experience, which is kind of a shocking thing because that's not what comes to mind when a lot of people are talking about who's real America. And so I wanted to explore in this piece that this is a great subversion that's happening with this artwork saying, I'm going to show you a very specific story about an African-American, and that's going to be authentic America. You quote the author of An American Marriage, I believe, in saying that when she, to she told her editor, quote, an American marriage sounded like a novel about some white people in Connecticut <laughs> experiencing feelings. I thought that just captured it so perfectly because that is not at all what this book is about. Not at all. So An American Marriage is a New York Times bestselling book, and it is about a couple in Atlanta. So a black couple in Atlanta, the husband is wrongfully convicted, goes to prison. And now you're looking at what is life like when you have um, an incarcerated uh, partner. And so I loved that quote that she said as well, because even as African-Americans, we've been so inundated saying like, this is, you know, um, America is white America. And so even pushing that joke and making it reality that's amazing. And that, and Oprah said, that is why I picked up that book. And so it's part of that process of you're giving the reader a challenge, even before they open that book and delve into that story, you're making them think differently about like, who, whose stories do we care about? And what does that represent in this country? Well, and as you point out, when we think about that word used in novels and movies, you think about American beauty, you know, this sort of ennui of white suburbia. Yeah. You think about American pastoral, Philip Roth's novel that was turned into a movie. And those are obviously very different experience, very suburban white experiences. And yet, this is happening in a different way here in 2019. You talk about an American summer, which is, again, a very different picture 
that of Chicago, right? Yes. So I'm from Chicago. I love this book. And this book is about three months in the summer. What is the effect of gun violence in the city on the people who live in these neighborhoods? So we're looking at a mother who's lost a child from gun violence or a friend who watched his uh, you know, 16 year old friend die from gun violence. And what is the effects of living in that and not feeling like you're getting resources um, to, to survive that? So the title of it is An American Summer and everyone loves summer. It conjures these images of going to the beach and having fun and being on vacation. But this author, Alex Katlowitz, he's making the argument that this too is an American summer for millions of people living in this country. And how about we give more attention to that? Right. Well, and you also point out toward the end of this piece, which I highly recommend, this notion that what these books specifically are doing in the play you mentioned as well is move a lot of this experience from a section maybe in a different part of the bookstore, the African-American section, yeah. much more into the front area in a lot of ways, you know, among all the other novels that people may be picking up. And you talk about, you know, the power of seeing people read this on a train or on a beach or on a plane. And that really hopefully moves the conversation in a different direction. Totally. I think one of the biggest frustrations that African-American writers or playwrights have is that they get typecasters like you can be in this section and your audience is just black Americans and enjoy that. But what I've really enjoyed about seeing these books is that I see white people, Asian people, all different people reading it. And by reading it, you're slowly starting to unravel the assumptions we have about who belongs here, whose stories matter and like what this country represents. And I think that's really the power. And so in American Son, the play with Carrie Washington, um, going through a night in a police station trying to hear word of her missing black son, that's going to go to Netflix now. So right. that's going to get an even wider audience to start thinking about who's an American. Well, and you point out, and I'm glad you brought that up because you point out there too that the algorithms ultimately will say to you, okay, you liked Scandal? You're going to like <laughs> this. And so you don't, that discoverability becomes that much more important. Yeah. Jordan Holman, really, really great piece uh, in the pursuit section. She is this week's critic. Thank you so much. Thank you. So one of the coolest cats we know, Hannah Elliott, back with me in New York City. This headline really grabbed me, the $20 million Porsche that may not be a Porsche. Say what? <laughs> right. Well, it depends on who you ask. Now, this is the Type 64, a uh, car from 1939 made by Ferdinand Porsche himself. Now, Sotheby's is selling it next month at their big Pebble Beach auction, and Sotheby's is calling it the Porsche Type 64 because it was indeed made by Ferdinand Porsche. However, Porsche Company wasn't started until 10 years after this car was made. This car was also made with mostly VW parts or parts that Mr. Porsche built himself. And um, it's been augmented with parts from Fiat and a bunch of other um, obscure German parts makers. So is it a Porsche or isn't it? It really depends on who you ask. And that's kind of the controversy. Right. And the heritage of this car, to say the least, is complicated even beyond the timing. Yes. 1939, we're talking about the Nazi party in Germany. Porsche himself was ultimately served time in jail for yes, war crimes. For war crimes. He was associated, more than associated, with the Nazis. But even the car, as you mentioned, is sort of cobbled together with all these different parts, not in a way that we're used to seeing in right. these types of cars, right? That's, that's again, part of the controversy. Um, 
This car was owned for over 40 years by the same man, Otto Matthey, who um, had it until he died in 95. Otto raced the car. And it, it got crashed, as it happens in racing. The car's been painted a bunch of colors, turquoise, silver, black. Um, the engine's been switched out multiple times. The brakes, the transmission, it's been a lot of things. Um, some of the original parts are still with the car. However, they're not in the car. Right. So, again, this is a, it's, it's really getting to the nut of what is original. This car's never been restored, though. So a lot of people say, look, this is the car in pristine condition because it has never been restored. This is truly how it is. What you see is what you get. But other people say, well, it hardly has any of the original parts that were put in by Mr. Porsche himself in 1939. Again, it's really controversial. And so, as you say, different people feel very strongly about this. And in the middle of it, essentially saying nothing is... The modern Porsche company itself is Porsche. And that's another very interesting aspect. The Porsche Museum um, during the 1950s and 60s tried to buy this car many times. There are over 40 letters between Otto Matthew, the owner, and the Porsche family trying to buy this car back as part of the Porsche heritage. The Porsche Museum is a great space in Stuttgart, Germany, has many members of the Porsche family there. You would think they would want this if they recognize it as part of their lineage, the DNA of the company. Of course, you can see this car looks very much like the 356 Porsche. The museum has not responded to requests for comment, has not released any official comments on this car. They are very, very quiet about it. Yeah, it's interesting, too, as you point out, Porsche himself, Mr. Porsche himself, referred to this car, the Type 64, as, in English, the ancestor. So that seems to tell you at least something about this. Certainly. And there's no denying that if you look at this car, you can see... The influences into the 356 and even the 911, the cars that came after it, it certainly uh, is in part of the ether of what became Porsche. Right. Exactly. Well, it's a wonderful story. (laughs) So moving on, just more evidence that you are such a cool chick, if I may say that. You write in this week's The One, I believe, about... A really cool guitar, Cindy guitars. Tell us about yeah. this. It's a beautiful, uh, talk about a beautiful piece of machinery. Wow. I love it. And it's so rare to find instruments that are being handmade still. Um, these are built by uh, Cindy of Cindy Guitars um, in the shop, Carmine Street Guitars in New York City. And the cool thing about these cars, they're, uh, guitars, they're handmade, but they're using wood reclaimed from historic buildings around New York, buildings from the Bowery, old churches. Um, old saloons, and they're made, you know, over months of time by hand to be really customized. And so, so much of what they do when they're customized is they try and capture the personality of the player, right? Yeah. Tell us how you do that. Well, there's a lot of talking going on, a lot of back and forth consultations. You know, what is special to that um, artist? Maybe it would be a little eye on the back of a back of the guitar that is like an you know to ward off bad spirits or pinstriping, flames, you name it. Right, Keith Richards, he plays one of these. Uh, yes, he does. All right, so what's this going to run you? The one we feature in this section is about $4,000. Wow. And so if you're looking for this type of guitar, what else might you go? Because you you guys always talk about the competition as well. Sure. There's Tom Anderson guitars, and he's really the icon of the era. Um, He's in California. He's been doing it since the 70s. Yeah. All right. So... 
people should go out and buy this one. Yes. You think? Yeah, I like. I mean, I like. It's, Cindy's uh, in her twenties still. It's very rare to find a young woman. She's apprentice apprentice there for um, many years, and she's yeah. really a rising star. Wow, it's yeah. a really really cool looking guitar. Cars, guitars, you're good for everything. <laughs> Hannah Elliott, thanks so much. Thank you. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Taylor Riggs in for Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. Can't catch the show live? Get the daily podcast for the ride home wherever you download your podcast. And you can get this week's edition of the magazine on newsstands now. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.